This morning's uh, scripture reading is from Mark chapter 2, verses 1 to 12. It's a relatively familiar story from the life of Jesus. Many of you will recognize it. Uh, I'm going to read this, and then I'll take a minute and I'll introduce a little bit about what we're going to do over the next three weeks, because it's a little bit different than than our classic sermon series. But for now, let me invite you to stand, if you're able, while I read uh, this. Stand out of respect for the reading of God's Word. We believe that this this text carries authority uh, from God directly because it is His inspired Word. And when I'm done reading, if you're able to agree with us on that, then I'm going to make the declaration that this is the Word of the Lord and ask you to respond by saying, thanks be to God. This is Mark chapter 2, starting at verse 1. And when he, that is Jesus, returned to Capernaum, after some days it was reported that he was at home. And many were gathered together so so that there was no more room, not even at the door. And he was preaching the word to them. And they came, bringing to him a paralytic carried by four men. And when they could not get near him because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him. And when they had made an opening, they let down the bed on which the paralytic lay. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. Now some of the scribes were sitting there, questioning in their hearts, Why does this man speak like that? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? And immediately Jesus, perceiving in his spirit that they thus questioned within themselves, said to them, Why do you question these things in your hearts? Which is easier, to say to the paralytic, Your sins are forgiven, or to say, Rise, take up your bed and walk? But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the paralytic. I say to you, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And he rose, and immediately picked up his bed and went out before them all, so that they were all amazed and glorified God, saying, we never saw anything like this. This is the word of the Lord. And please be seated. Okay, so what are we, what are we doing here? Well, this, this fall... In September, we're going to start a course called Exploring Christianity. If you were at the congregational meeting in January, you heard me talk about it then. It's a three-week course on Wednesday evenings in the latter part of September, and you'll hear more about it over the next couple of months as we begin promotion and open up registration. But essentially, it's a three-week discussion about the big questions of life that everyone asks and how Christianity answers those questions in a way that we believe is uniquely satisfying to those people who are asking the questions. And it won't assume, in fact, it's designed for those maybe who don't, who maybe don't believe in Christianity, don't believe in the Bible. It won't presume that someone knows a lot about the Bible. It's an, it's an entry point. It's designed to be an on-ramp to what the Bible says about the big questions of life. And so maybe that's something that you would find interesting. Maybe it's something that you have someone that you know would find interesting, and you can be thinking about inviting them in September, and we'll talk more about that. But every evening, the way it will look is we'll have a talk on one of these three big questions that people ask, and then we'll have after that group discussion time and an open question and answer time to, to kind of end it all. Now, what we're going to do, partially as a preview, these next three weeks is to give you a taste of what the talks will be like. It's kind of a first draft, if, if you will. Now, this is partially to help to sort of force me to think a little bit through the material now rather than wait to the first week of September and be scrambling about putting these, these talks together. Um, but it's also to help give you a sense of what the talks are going to be like. Now, what you'll benefit, you'll hear, you'll hear the talk, but what you won't hear is, or what you won't be available for, is the question and answer time, the discussion time that follows. 
And so logically, there will be things that, uh, that, that, that maybe is, is worth further discussion. That's the idea. That's the, that's the point. Now, what we're going to do, like I said, is we're going to look at three major categories of questions that everyone everywhere asks. And whether they intend to or not, everyone everywhere answers in the way that they choose to live their lives. And in outlining the Christian response, I want to help you see in summary form how Christianity uniquely answers those questions. Now, that's the introduction. That's the explanation of, of what we're going to be doing. And the first question that we're going to look at this first week is the question of identity. Who am I? Now, I know, I know someone, um, and don't look around because you don't know them. They're not here. I know someone who, when she was a little girl, used to tease her younger siblings by pretending to have amnesia. You know, like, you know, the temporary condition usually where you can't remember things. And she would torment her younger siblings by walking up to them and kind of just looking at them with, you know, kind of a blank, flat stare and just be like, who am I? Who am I? And it would really freak them out. And she would just persist in this until, you know, mom stepped in and kind of said, like, knock it off. Now, why, though, is, why, why was that the reaction? Why, why would it freak them out? Because it's really unsettling to not know who you are or to encounter someone who doesn't know who they are. And it's deeply threatening to your emotional stability to not know your position, your place in the, in the world, which is why everyone asks this question. It's why finding, who you, finding your identity, discovering who you are, is what everyone is talking about these days. It's not a wrong thing to talk about. The first thing that we have to acknowledge is that this is a nagging question that is asked by everyone. Right? Think about this with, with me. Who am I? First point. It's a nagging question that's asked by us all. Everyone asks this question. Saul Levine, who is a professor emeritus in psychiatry at the University of California, San Diego, um, he writes regularly for Psychology Today, and he says that it's probably most common to associate this identity sort of question with adolescents, with teenagers, young adults. But the reality, he says, is that while, yes, the teenage years are a period of significant developmental change and questions of identity are real during that time, it is not the sole domain of adolescents to be asking this question. In fact, Saul Levine says, defining one's identity is a recurrent lifelong challenge. That's what he says. It's a universal question, in other words. Now, in general, I think we tend to try to answer it, or the world tends to try to answer it, by looking for the answer either from the inside or from the outside. I guess there would be no other way, but from the inside or from the outside. Now, the identity from the inside way is what's most at home in the Western secular world, right? We say, who defines you? Who defines me? Well, me. I do. I define my identity. And that sounds very empowering. And increasingly, it sounds like the right answer because increasingly, it's basically all we hear. Don't let anyone else tell you who you are or who you should be. Discover who you are from the inside and then let that person free. Right? That kind of rhymes. I didn't mean that. But, the, but you see, right? right? That's what Elsa is saying. Right? You know Elsa, the philosopher queen from Disney's Frozen. That's what she's saying. The wind is howling like this swirling storm inside. Couldn't keep it in. Heaven knows I tried. Don't let them in. Don't let them see. Be the good girl you always have to be. Conceal, don't feel. Don't let them know. Well, now they know. Let it go. Let it go. Can't hold it back anymore. Remember that song? If you, have a, if you had a child who was around seven years old about ten years ago, you remember that song. And Elsa's point is you can't let you, the outside define you. You need to define yourself. You need to let it out. You need to let it go. 
It's time to see what I can do, to test the limits and break through. No right, no wrong, no rules for me. I'm free. Now that message, that's really just putting into an addictive song what Supreme Court Justice Anthony Kennedy wrote in 1992. He said, in an opinion of the Supreme Court, he said, at the heart of liberty is the right to define one's own concept of existence, of meaning, of the universe, of the mystery of human life. You see what he's saying? At the heart of liberty is the right to define one's own concept of existence. That's what Justice Kennedy said. But here's my question. Is that true? Practically, does that work? Right? Do we define ourselves and our purpose from inside ourselves or are people always in some sense looking to really derive or to validate their identity from something outside themselves as well? Beverly Tatum, also a psychologist, this time from Spelman College in Atlanta, Georgia, she makes the argument that everything around us is what actually shapes who we become. It's our external influences, what, we, what, what others believe about us. She says our interests, our possessions, our choices, our friends, our family, our work, all of those things, our appearance, our language, our religious background, where we grew up, who our parents, they are the things that affect and determine who we are. Who am I, Tatum says? She says the answer depends in large part on who the world around me says I am. Now that's interesting. Because by that, what she's saying is that the world around us is constantly providing feedback to us about what is normal and what is desirable and what is good. And if we're honest, I do think that we are looking for feedback. I think we are always looking for external acceptance, something, someone or something to come and look at us from the outside and say, that's who you are. Or to say that who you are is, is okay. We're looking to conform to some external authority to to validate us. Now, lots of things have changed on the university campuses in the last 30 years, but, but some things haven't. I remember walking with my college uh, roommate one time across campus, and him saying to me one time as we're walking across campus, he said, hey, Tom, did you ever notice that all the nonconformists tend to dress alike? You get the irony? All, now, I've never really, I've never really been mistaken for a nonconformist. I'm wearing a button-down shirt that I could have worn 20 years ago. In fact, I think this button-down shirt I did wear 20 years ago. Right? But, but when you claim an identity of individuality and expression and not conforming, and then you just can't help but want to blend in with everyone else, you're showing that you are still relying on a validation and a sense of your identity from the outside more than you think. Now, the problem, of course, is that many of these external forces that tell us what we should think about ourselves, they take us down a road that doesn't satisfy. Right? Ask the former pop music star, and she'll tell you that the approval of the crowd, the constant need for their approval, is both exhilarating when it happens and horribly depressing because you're always just trying to stay ahead of the fear, the nagging fear, that next week you'll just be mediocre and uninteresting. Or ask the star athlete who reaches the very top of his game, ranked number one in the world. And he'll tell you that he wants at that moment to feel great when that happens, but that it's a lie. It's really empty and unsatisfying because you've reached the top and you look around and you realize it isn't exactly what you thought it was going to be. Ask the successful supermodel who becomes famous by portraying an image of self-assurance and self-confidence. And she'll tell you that a professional model is probably the most physically insecure woman on the planet. 
Now, none of us are pop music sensations, star athletes or supermodels, but, but don't, we don't need those, any of those things to understand those feelings. And you can blame social media, you can blame the world in which we live where our sense of identity from the outside is driven by likes and clicks and shares, but that's really just gasoline on a fire that's already burning. You see the point? Here's the point. We try to define ourselves. We tell ourselves we should define ourselves. Elsa tells us we should define ourselves from the inside. But we don't find on the inside the resources that we really need. And so, without even thinking sometimes, we take our cues from, for our identity from the outside. We can't help it. We seem to instinctively know that we need something from the outside to, to define us. But the typical answers for defining ourselves, being special, being successful, being beautiful, they all lead down a road that leads to less satisfaction rather than more. In other words, the identity that everything seems to promise, this identity from the inside or from all of these out other outside sources, that the identity that they offer, they can't deliver. Now, I want to introduce you to someone who not only clearly understood who he was, but who provides uniquely an identity that both matches reality and satisfies our deepest longings. In other words, he defines you in a way that is both true and existentially satisfying, and probably not surprising uh, to you in a Christian church service coming from a Christian pastor, that person is Jesus. Right? We're all asking this nagging question. That's point number one, this question asked by all. But now I want to show you the one who gives you the satisfying answer given only by one. Now, there's no shortage of opinions about who Jesus is. If you read the, the Gospel of Mark, one of the four accounts of his life, you see that, that this identity of his is being constantly debated. Many would say he's a good man, he's a good teacher, he's a, a moral example, that's who he was. Right? Others would say that he was crazy, that he was demon-possessed, that he was delusional, or worse, that he was intentionally manipulative. And sometimes people think that Jesus was just kind of being coy, that he was trying to hide it, Claim about who he really claimed to be, but not really. Now, he was wise about to whom he revealed himself and when, but he was actually quite clear about his claims to the point where it made people very upset sometimes when he actually said who he was, like these religious leaders we read about here in Mark chapter 2. Let's go back to Mark chapter 2, that, that, that uh, section that I read, verses 1 to 12. This is a pretty strange scene. Jesus is teaching in Capernaum. He's teaching inside a house, and the word about him is, is getting around. The crowds are getting interested in this Jesus. At the end of Mark chapter 1, you can read about how he's been, he's been healing people. He's been driving out demons. And people are just stuffed into this room where he is teaching. And these four men are bringing, a friend of theirs maybe, a paralytic, a paralyzed man, a guy who can't walk, bringing him to hear, to hear Jesus. And probably in their minds, based on what Jesus had been doing already, hopefully to get him healed. But they can't get into the room. It's too full. So they go to the roof and remove a section of it. And in a scene which is at the same time like incredibly bizarre and almost comical, they, they take a section of the roof out and they lower this guy down into the room through the ceiling. It's pretty wild. Now, as strange as the situation is, though, the fact that this guy is being lowered into the room through the roof, the most interesting part here is what we learn about who Jesus is. And from that, how who Jesus is helps us learn who we are. Now first, what does this tell us about Jesus? Let's get his identity right. Who is Jesus claiming to be here? Well, he's claiming to be a teacher, right? We see that. What's he doing in the room? Well, it says in verse 2, he was preaching the word of God, which, of, which in itself is a claim of some authority. 
because Jesus didn't belong to one of the religious schools of the day. He hadn't been formally trained by the, the great rabbis. He hasn't gone to one of their, one of their seminaries, and he must, have, he must have been pretty captivating in the way that he taught. Mark had already said in chapter 1 that the people were amazed at the power of his, of his words. What is this? This is what it says in Mark 1, that the people's response. What is this? A new teaching from this guy? And with authority. And the word that it says he's preaching is nothing less than the message of the kingdom of God. Mark says here in, in these verses that he was preaching the word to them. Now Mark is very, you have to understand about Mark, he's very economical with his words. He's not going to repeat what he already said in chapter 1 verse 14 about what Jesus has been preaching. He's just going to call it the word here. But in Mark chapter 1 verse 14, he explains what that means. He says that Jesus had been proclaiming the good news of God, which was that the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand and that people must repent in the face of that. That was the message. That was the good news. That was the, the word that he was preaching to them. In other words, he wasn't just teaching them some rehashed, rewarmed sermon that the rabbis had been teaching people for, for centuries. This was a new sermon about how the rule of God was arriving now in a new and a special way through his ministry. So Jesus is claiming to be a to be a teacher, speaking with news about what God is doing in their midst. Now, he's also claiming to be, a, to be a healer. He's demonstrating to be a healer. We see that. We've already known that he's done some of these things in chapter 1, casting out demons. He healed Peter's, one of the, uh, one of the disciples, one of his, Peter's mother-in-law. He had healed a man with leprosy. And in fact, it says that he, that he healed many who were sick with various diseases, it says in chapter 1. And he ends up showing that same identity of a healer with this paralyzed man in chapter 2. A man who can't walk. And all Jesus does, all he has to do, is just simply say the word to him. No magic potion. No weeks of therapy. Rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And guess what? The man stands up. He gets up. Jesus is a teacher. Jesus is a healer. They're both aspects of who he is. But, and this one is the biggie, he is also claiming to be God. Now, that's a pretty bold identity claim, right? Where do I see that? Well, we see it in his statement to the, the paralyzed man. Before he physically heals him, incidentally, in verse 5, he says, Son, your sins are forgiven. And you say, I don't see it right away. I don't see how he's claiming to be God here. Well, the religious leaders did. The religious leaders got it. You see, they don't mind the paralyzed man being called a sinner. They know everyone's a sinner, and they thought especially that if this man was paralyzed, he probably had to have done something wrong. Of course he was a sinner because he was in this condition, right? They didn't have a problem with Jesus calling the man or thinking the man to be a sinner who had sins that needed to be forgiven. The problem with Jesus is shown in verse 7. Why does this man speak like that, they say? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? You see, they get it. In other words, they're saying to Jesus, who do you think you are that you can forgive this man's sins? See, forgiveness can be sought from, if you've wronged someone, you can, you can seek it from two, two, two persons. You can seek it from, appropriately, the person that you've, you've wronged. Right? But this man hasn't done anything wrong specifically to, to Jesus, at least that's outwardly apparent. Now, the other person that you can and ought to seek forgiveness from in a situation is not just the other person, but from, from God. The Hebrew Scriptures would have taught that, that all sin is a sin not just against another, but against God. You can take a look at Psalm 51, for example, and you can see that. 
Right? But the only other person that Jesus could have been if he was not someone who had been directly offended as a human being by this paralyzed man, the only other person that he could have been to be offering forgiveness was God. Now, ultimately, Jesus is going to have to back up all these claims. He's going to have to, to demonstrate that these things that he's saying and doing are actually true. And we'll look next week and the week after that at the defining ultimate way that he does that, that he backs up these claims of who he is. But for, for now, I want you to step into these claims. And I want you to see how embracing the identity of Jesus, how recognizing the identity of Jesus as an authoritative teacher, as a miraculous healer, and as a forgiving God, how that identity, how recognizing, embracing, and putting your faith in that identity can be a far more satisfying basis for your identity than anything else that you're looking for. All right, go back and think through this interaction that Jesus had with the paralyzed man and think it through with me. What does this say about who we are? Well, I put three things in the outline. These are three things that the man experiences. Right? Placing yourself and putting your faith in the identity of Jesus as he identifies himself to you, trusting yourself to him and putting yourself under his authority means for you three things. It means that you're valued, it means that you're broken, and it means that you're redeemed. Let's go through the three of them quickly. First, it means that you're valued. Would you note something about Jesus? We're just at the start of the second chapter of Mark's gospel, just at the very beginning. Now, it's a relatively short gospel. There are only 16 chapters, but we're only in chapter 2. And he is already treating people clearly, in repeated fashion, with a dignity and respect that they didn't generally receive from the society around them. For example, he heals Peter's mother-in-law, one of his first healings of a woman. He heals a man with leprosy who would have been, who would have been considered ceremonially unclean. Don't touch, right? Just being near a person like that would defile you. He heals, heals the, a, a chronically disabled man, like this paralyzed man here, also unclean for worship. And it's remarkable how Jesus teaches them, how he treats them, how he gives them attention, how he treats them with compassion. He shows them love. He values them. Now, we have to say this in the world that we, that we live in today. The value of these people is not because they are oppressed and marginalized. You hear that? They don't get value because they're marginalized or because they're oppressed. Their value doesn't come from their minority or their oppressed status. Just the opposite. Their oppression and their marginalization results from the fact that their true ultimate identity and value is not recognized. Right, now, where does that value come from? Well, the Bible tells us that when God created humanity, men and women, he created them, he says in Genesis chapter 1, in his image. In other words, at creation, God placed the mark of dignity, the mark of value, the mark of worth on every human being. Now, this is tremendously good news for someone seeking the answer to who they are, for someone searching for identity, because it means that you're not defined by your group, by your ability, or your own accomplishments. Your value doesn't actually come from any of those things that you may or may not have been born with or may or may not be able to to do it comes from something that is intrinsic to who you are from the god who made you that can't be taken away you are an image bearer of the god of the universe and that means that you have a dignity and a value that can never be taken away so that's the first thing if you're taking your cues from jesus then who are you you are an image bearer of god 
with inherent value and dignity. Now, second, you are also broken. Now, that word puts it a little bit maybe too delicately. It's actually significantly worse than that. All right, let me show you what I mean and then tell you why embracing this, this as true, is actually satisfying as well. All right, there's an obvious brokenness of the man, isn't there? His legs don't work. All right, that's obvious. And we notice that kind of brokenness all the time. It's not really up for, for debate. Disease and disability, chronic pain, ailments that increase as we, as we age. I saw a woman um, in the hallway at the hospital the other day. She had a procedure on her leg earlier in the week, and um, she had been up most of the night before because it was just causing her tons of pain. And she said, you know, see that vending machine over there? I wish I could just go push a button and out would come a new leg. <laughs> We all understand that kind of brokenness. But what I want you to notice is that that isn't this man's biggest problem. You see that in the fact that Jesus didn't, the fact that Jesus didn't physically hear him until later. The first thing he, he, he says to this man, the first thing that he says to this man is a bit, is this bit about his sins being forgiven. Which, of course, is what gets the religious leaders all upset because Jesus is, of course, in this claiming to be God. But there's something that Jesus is saying to the man about the man as well. He's saying, your biggest problem is not your paralysis. Right? You came in here thinking that I would just be a different person. I would just, my identity, my life would just be set if I could just have legs that work. Right? That would be just fine, right? See, these are, the, these are the false, secondary, and ultimately limited identities that we seek. And that's how the paralyzed man came in. He said, if I just had that, I'll be good. And Jesus says, you have no idea the depth of your problem. Now, we'll get, to a little bit, we'll get a little bit more to defining this concept of sin next week. Right? And it is. It might be a little bit harder to accept. But, but I... I I probably would not have to spend too much time with any of you to help you see that your problems are really not just physical, that they are spiritual as, as well, that we can't really define ourselves well from the inside because our inside is really the core of our problem. Now, many people don't like this part, right, because... Because you kind of like at least the sound of you're valuable. You have, you're an image bearer. You have, you have dignity. And all that is true. But we don't like the fact when someone says to us or when someone comes along and claims this identity of being God and says, yes, but there is something fundamentally flawed in you as well. Something at the core that is radically wrong with who you are. Because what that means is that means that needs to change. Now, not everyone calls it sin, but we all know that there is something on the inside of us that is wrong with us. That's true, right? And if I just took all of your thoughts that ran through your head and suddenly plastered them all over the internet, it wouldn't take too long to prove that, that there's something wrong within us. But while it's uncomfortable, it is actually a relief to have someone acknowledge to be true what we actually really know, if we're honest with ourselves, is true, and that there is something at the core of us that is wrong and needs to change. Especially, especially it is comforting when that someone who comes to us and tells us that is Jesus. Because if Jesus actually is who he says he is, then he's not just here to diagnose your problem, he's here to fix your problem. All right, the third thing it means for your identity, if you accept and place yourself under the authority of Jesus' identity, is that you are redeemed. Right, this man is physically healed. He gets up, he walks away. That's amazing. It's a miracle. But the greater miracle is not the redemption of this man's body. The greater miracle is the redemption of his soul. 
When Jesus says, your sins are forgiven, he's not just saying it as a backhand way to claim that he's God. He's actually making the declaration that as God, he is declaring this man forgiven. And the Greek tense of the verb, the scholars will tell you, signifies that it occurs at that moment. Now, like I keep saying, we'll talk more about how that, how that works, how that, how that forgiveness is possible, how that redemption occurs. We'll talk more about that next week. But I use that word redeemed intentionally to refer to what this means because the identity of Jesus as he is defining himself in this passage is setting us up to understand a forgiveness that is purchased by a payment. Right? He says your sins are forgiven, but, it is, but the way that he does it in the context of the way this is happening is setting us to understand this forgiveness as only being possible by redemption, by a payment being made that purchases that forgiveness. Right? What is the charge that the religious leaders make against Jesus in verse 7? What crime do they charge him with? Blasphemy. You know what the penalty was for that under Jewish law? Death. And Jesus is setting in motion here events. We're only in chapter 2, but it's getting set up already. He is setting events in motion that will lead the Jewish leaders to conspire with the Romans to have Jesus executed for this very identity claim that he is making right here. And it is by that death, Christianity says, that the price is paid for our sin and redemption is accomplished. It is by that death that you, in the midst of your broken, rebellious fallenness are redeemed. Now, I just want you to consider what this means. This definition of who you are that's being put in, put in front of you. There are lots of systems of belief today that will try to tell you that you're valued, that you're special, that you're worth something. And you'll find lots of other people, plenty of people in this world who will tell you that you're broken, that you don't amount to anything, that you don't do things right. You'll find lots of people in both of those camps who will just tell you those things. But only Christianity tells you simultaneously that you have a true value that is not tied to any external condition and at the same time acknowledge what you know anyway, that you are messed up at the very same time. And only Christianity certainly tells you about the man who identified himself as God who was willing to die so that that true value that you possess by creation can be redeemed from the consequences of your brokenness. Are you looking for that? For an identity that is true? For an identity, an identity that acknowledges that you are more broken than you want anyone else to know? That you are more valued than anyone else can dream, but you are because you are redeemed by a price you could not pay right here it is here is your identity you can end your search right here with this man named jesus your need to be truly special to truly succeed to be called truly beautiful will never be found in yourself uh, c.s lewis the the british intellectual of the early 20th century he made this observation in his book mere christianity he writes he says look for yourself and you'll find in the long run only hatred, loneliness, despair, rage, ruin, and decay. Right? If you're just kind of doing your own search. In other words, every other identity will fail you. Like pop star fame or physical success or, or, or physical beauty or professional acclaim, all those things. Eventually, the fame will fade. The success will end. The beauty will will wrinkle. And the failure of those things, if that's what you've built your identity on, will ultimately crush you. But in Jesus, 
You have someone who will lift the burdens you carry. Only Jesus gives you an identity that will never fade, that will never end, that will never wrinkle. This is what Lewis says, right? This quote, look for yourself and you will find in the long run only hatred, loneliness, despair, rage, ruin, and decay. But he continues, he says, but look for Christ and you will find him. And with him, you will find everything else thrown in. Giving ourselves, he says, giving ourselves wholly to Christ is the only way to discover who we are, the only way to become who Christ means us to be, the only way to experience his riches in this life, and the only way to fulfill the purpose for which he made us. It may seem frightening, Lewis says, but once you do it, your only regret will be that you didn't do it sooner. We need to listen to Lewis. We need to listen to Jesus, better yet. Who are you? You are a redeemed image bearer of the living God. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the news of who you are and who you have and what you have done for us in Jesus Christ. Lord, we pray that that identity of who he is would change ours. And that, Lord, as we question and as we search and as we know the right answer even, but still seek to find validation in things that won't satisfy us, Lord, help us to be regularly convicted of our need for you. And then satisfy, Lord, through your grace, the deepest longings of our heart with what is true as we submit to your greatness and your glory and your majesty and put ourselves under your authority. We pray all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen.